Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I get to my guest today, I just want to announce that fans of the show will have an opportunity to buy some limited edition merch, and the link to that will be in the description. All right, my guest today is Nikkel Terry Ellis. Nikkel is the senior writer for CNN's Race and Equality team. Before that, she was a national correspondent for USA Today, covering race, inequality, and activism. And she also spent six years working in local news with the Detroit News and the Asbury Park Press. I often receive the criticism that I only talk to people who agree with me about the problem of wokeness and the moral panic around racism and white supremacy. People like John McWhorter and Sam Harris and Glenn Lowry. But the people making that charge only see the tip of the iceberg. They don't see the dozens of requests and emails I send to prominent people on the other side of this issue to come on my show, all of which get rejected. Uh, Ibram Kendi is the only such attempt that I've made public. And Nikkel is really the first mainstream media person in a long time that disagrees with me on the race thing, but is willing to talk about it. So I'm grateful to her for that. Unfortunately, I didn't have that much time with Nikkel, but in the future... I hope to go deeper into all of these subjects with people who disagree with me. So Nikkel and I talk about the biases of the mainstream media on the topic of race. We talk about racial disparities in the use of force by the police. Talk about George Floyd, Tony Timpa, and Micaiah Bryant. And we talk at the end of the podcast about whether Black America as a whole is making progress or sliding backwards and much more. So without further ado, Nikkel Terry Ellis. All right, Nikkel, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. So um, listeners to my podcast have probably almost certainly read many of your articles for CNN and, and many other outlets. But for those who may not be familiar with you, can you just give a brief summary of of your career and how you came to become a journalist and and so forth? Yeah. So I started my career in local news. And so I was a reporter in New Jersey working for the Asbury Park Press for about three and a half years, covering a lot of local government issues and city hall and uh, a lot of issues with uh, the development of the beachfront on the Jersey shore. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I moved to Detroit. I'm originally from Michigan. I studied journalism at Michigan State University. So uh, it was kind of a return back home for me when I got the job at the Detroit News, covered similar issues there, covered city Detroit City Hall, lots to report on there and covered some issues within the Black community in Detroit and worked there for about two, two and a half years or so before moving on to work in national news for USA Today. At that point, I relocated to Atlanta for that job to be the Atlanta-based national correspondent. And so I worked at USA Today, and that's kind of where I um, really got into covering a lot of issues of race and equality. Um, particularly after the killing of George Floyd in May of 2020, when the entire racial reckoning sparked. And there were a lot of protests, as I'm sure you all know, across the country. And the country just kind of went through this uh, this reckoning and realized that racism was real and that people of color were constantly uh, you know, facing police brutality, police violence. Um, And then, you know, facing a whole host of other disparities and equities that had not really been highlighted or given the attention that they actually deserve. And we can talk about race and how racism permeates through every aspect of our lives from uh, sports to entertainment to uh, to politics. 
um, to healthcare, to education and everything. And I think it just uh, definitely um, brought forward that conversation last summer. And I was happy that I could be on the forefront of that coverage. And I think at CNN, where I currently work, they recognized and saw the work that I was doing at USA Today. And they uh, brought me in and recruited me for the race and equality team that they started last year, where we have a small team uh, that consists of myself, another writer, um, an editor, we have a, a beat leader, we have someone who does graphics and visuals for us, but all of us are focused on covering race and racism. And that's where I am now, where I'm covering race, but I'm contributing to all of CNN's platforms uh, from digital to audio, to television, to everything. And I, it, it makes me happy that I'm able to uh, get the message and get these stories across on every platform. Mm. Yeah, so... That's you, you have a, a lot of experience at different levels of journalism, which I think is is interesting. And I'll have some questions based on that in a, in a second. But before I ask you my first question, um, I just want to say this, like partly for the audience and and um, just partly for myself, which is I really believe in the value of engaging with views you disagree with, and I think in a lot of ways it's it's a lost art in, in our society at the moment which is, you know, the art of having a productive conversation with someone you might have some important disagreements with. And, you know, I've found because I've sometimes been labeled a conservative that some people just won't come on my podcast as a result because there's this idea that you shouldn't speak to people who have different politics than you. And, uh, you know, either because they're, they're horrible or because everyone's so stubborn and people never change their minds anyway. And so the result is that I think a lot of people, unfortunately, live their lives, at least online, in little bubbles of people who agree with them about everything. And, um, and that's a problem because, you know, we're, we're seeing this problem of people getting radicalized online, whether it's, you know, QAnon or, or, or anti-vax or Antifa you know, people just go down these rabbit holes online of people who agree with them and get more and more radicalized. And I think one of the antidotes to that is to, you know, model having productive dis disagreements. So, so that's all to say, I'm just really happy that I'm, you know, able to get you on the podcast here. Uh, definitely, definitely. And it's good to be here. And I think that as a journalist, it's important for me to understand both, you know, both sides here, whether it's the more conservative side and the more liberal progressive side of a lot of the issues that we're facing as a country right now. Um, and I'm, I'm always open to hearing, you know, what uh, what what people and how people feel on on both sides. Um, I think with racism, just in my opinion, um, that I don't really view it as a both sides issue in some cases. I think that um, racism itself and sort of looking at how people of color have been, um, you know, underrepresented, uh, undervalued, dis their communities have been disinvested in for so long, marginalized. I think a lot of these uh, issues are really issues of humanity and people just simply not being treated fairly in, in a lot of cases. And so it's really hard for me to understand that argument. I think when it comes to a lot of policies, that's where I try to be um, you know, neutral or try to be understanding of both sides when it comes to uh, policy and you know how to address these, these issues when it comes to police reform, something that we know that Black Lives Matter protesters have been fighting for since last, since years, for years, actually. I think the, the conversation just kind of got reignited last summer during the protests about uh, reforming police agencies. But I think it's, uh, it's important to understand that, you know, you have lawmakers who are Republicans and Democrats who tend to uh, view these things differently, whether police reform, voting rights, uh, reparations, all of those things that are uh, conversations right now, abortion. Um, and so I think it's, it is important to at least try to listen and be open-minded and understand those things. I just have my, I just have pretty strong feelings when it comes to racism, I think. Mm. Yeah. So, so let, I guess let's start there since, since you mentioned you know, policies to reform the police. 
This was one thing during the coverage of the protests and the killing of George Floyd last year that where I felt there was uh, a bias in in the media at at places like like CNN where, you know, clearly there's a problem with American policing. There are many problems. Um, But there's also the problem of people living in unsafe neighborhoods, uh, you know, kids getting shot in drive-bys by stray bullets. And um, the solutions to all of these problems where we want people to feel policed and, and to feel to feel safe without feeling like the police are disrespecting them or without feeling uh, that, that they are being made unsafe by the police. This seems to me a, a complex problem. But the simple message I felt I was getting from so many in the culture was just the police are bad. Uh, you know, we, we need them. We need their influence to just lessen in the culture. We want to defund them um, or otherwise somehow diminish their influence. And it seemed like that was being presented as the voice of black Americans. Like that, this is just what black people think. And yet when you actually ask black people what they think, like, like Gallup, for instance, the polling organization, they did a poll last year and they asked black Americans, do you want the police to spend more time in your neighborhood, less time or the same amount? And the result they got was like 61% wanted the same amount, 20% wanted more and 19% wanted less. Like that picture is a, it's a nuanced picture where you have, you know, maybe one fifth of black people wanting more, one fifth wanting less and the rest wanting the same amount of time spent, you know, I would have never guessed that as a, as based on the message I was getting from the activist community and from many people in in the mainstream media. So this, you know, it seemed to me, this was an example where the national media outside of Fox news, of course, which is, has its own bias in the opposite direction was presenting as a voice for the black community, a very simplistic message that actually didn't capture all of the concerns of black Americans, uh, including about crime and, and violent crime, for instance. So this was one of my big gripes with the way the, that 2020 unfolded in the media. And, and I'm curious what that looks like for, for you from the inside. Is this, is that, do you, do you disagree with that characterization or that's fair. Um, you know, I think that it also goes to show that black people are not a monolith and that we don't all feel the same way about policing. And a lot of people in the black community, um, you know, obviously, I think that everyone in the black and brown community recognizes that there is an issue with disproportionate police violence and brutality against black people and they want something done about it. But but for a lot of those people, to your point, the poll that you mentioned don't necessarily believe that defunding police or getting rid of their police department is the answer. And while you do have activists who are sort of um, on the front lines and who have become um, what many people view as the voice for the black community, they're saying defund the police. You know, we want to cut from their budgets. We would like to reinvest that money into black and brown communities and to rebuilding our communities and providing more services for our people, for our children, which um, I mean, I think at the, at the same time, um, you, you see where there is a need for more funding, more funding in these communities. Um, but I think it just shows that there is um, there is not just one side to this in the, within the black community and that there are people that feel differently. And I think it's important to to make sure that as a member of the media, um, you know, to be responsible in that reporting. And I think it's fair for you to make that assessment um, that you know, that Black Lives Matter, you know, they were the ones that were being featured in a lot of our coverage last last summer as they were leading the movement. But it's important to also get those folks who are living in these neighborhoods, these people who are actually having to experience 
um, you know, whether it's whether it's uh, the black on black crime that you talk about, the gang violence that you talk about, as well as the police violence, they're experiencing all of it at once. So it's important to make sure you get their voices and go into these neighborhoods and talk to them as well to provide that balance. Because to my point that I made in the beginning, black Americans are not a monolith. Right. And I, it does feel like there is um, th- this problem of who speaks for a racial group or, or an ethnic group seems, you know, this is a, uh, I, I've had the same feeling about other examples of, of this problem. So obviously the police example is very important, but there's even more symbolic cultural issues that have been interesting to me. So for instance, I think you reported on the Washington Redskins changing their name and the Braves changing their names. And Braves have not changed their name. Or or the the Braves, uh, the the outrage over the the, the Braves name. And, you know, I I grew up a Mets fan. I have no love for the Braves to be, to be totally honest. They're like our, our main rivals. And I'm not, I'm not a big football guy. But I remember my, my, the first time I ever thought about this, I, my reflex was, yeah, that name is totally racist. Like what, why, why do we have these cringy mascots portraying native Americans? Like we could just teams change their name all the time. It's not that big a deal. Obviously if someone asked me to change the Mets name, I might feel a bit differently because that's my hometown team. But that aside, that was basically my reaction. And then I remember when the Washington Post poll came out in, in 2016 that did a, a random sample of Native Americans in the country and found that 80% didn't really find the name offensive. And of the rest, a, a, you know, a small minority of Native American activists and spokespeople and leaders did find it offensive. And those are the people who, who, whose quotes make, make it into the, to the media. I thought that was very interesting because I kind of took offense at it, but I wasn't Native American. It's not really my fight. And I feel like there is this, there is this, you know, there are people who claim to speak on behalf of a community and sometimes they actually sort of do, which is like sometimes their opinion is what most people in the group think. And other times they're very out of step with, with what most people in the group think. But I, I've all, it's always, uh, you know, gotten under my skin when people in the media just, you know, they go to some, a group that has a a name with like three or four letters and assume whoever's talking there is, is sort of speaking for the group. On the other hand, as a journalist, how do you decide whose opinion to, to go for? You, you can't, you can sort of just go up to people on the street, but again, they're no more representative necessarily than, than spokespeople with credentials and so forth. So I'm sort of curious how you negotiate this as a journalist when you decide, say on an issue you don't really know that much about, I need to go, I need to go see what the people in question think here. Who, how do you decide who to, who to ask? Actually, I want to challenge you on that because you mentioned, you mentioned that going up to people on the street and talking to them, you know, may not always work, but I think that, uh, getting regular people to comment sometimes on different issues is important because I think that's where you're going to find, I think, more diversity and thought and opinion. A lot of civil rights leaders and a lot of the folks who are on the front lines here, um, you know, from just to name a few groups, NAACP, Black Lives Matter, uh, Color of Change, a lot of those groups, um, you know, they may um, have a similar sentiment or similar views on a lot of the issues with race that we're facing as a country right now when it comes to policing, voting rights and, you know, other issues. Um, however, there are uh, people whose voices don't get heard. And I think that's why I challenge myself as a journalist to be a voice for the voiceless. And when I say that means being a voice for people um, who, you know, who, who you do meet on the street, people who you do meet walking through a neighborhood who are sitting on their porch and, you know, they're they're having these conversations at the dinner table or having these conversations at, at the barbershop or the hair salon, but not necessarily 
having a platform like someone from Black Lives Matter or Color of Change would to have their voice be heard. So to me, it's our responsibility as journalists to get on the ground and find these people. And whether that's sourcing through social media, whether it's physically going out and talking to people, but it's important to make sure that we reflect um, those voices within our coverage. And it's one thing that I think that we could do more of as journalists. So, uh, yeah, so I, I guess my next question, it's a similar question, but it, it also has to do with the difference between local news and national news. And, and you've done both. So to me, it's very interesting when a local story becomes a national story and when a local story stays a local story. And I discovered this because, or I began to be interested in this last year during the George Floyd protests, I looked at the Washington Post database, which collects every example they can find of an unarmed or armed American shot and killed by the police. And they source it always from local stories because local news is always the first you know, if, if someone gets killed in, in, a, in a town with a small population in Indiana, local news is covering it. And nobody else in the country hears about it unless major outlets like CNN, Fox, um, MSNBC, and so forth pick it up. And then if one picks it up, they sort of all pick it up. Um, but it seems to me there's, you know, I came across the case of Tony Timpa, who was a uh, a white guy who was killed i believe in in 2017 on camera in in a disturbingly similar way to George Floyd with a with a knee on the back of his in this case on the back of his neck for something like uh 13 minutes you know just slowly essentially suffocated to death and it's uh, um every, every bit as horrifying to watch um, and you know, the, the only places you could find this really are l- the local stories for the most part, or, or it didn't make, it didn't make the national news to the extent that the George Floyd case did. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what is the source of how, how do, how does a place like CNN decide which local stories to pick up and which local stories remain local stories? It's actually a really good question. Um, I think it really depends on a lot of times like what like what the, what the news cycle is and kind of what the conversation is um, within that community. Um, we kind of look at cases that stand out and, you know, the cases that have, um, you know, uh, details surrounding them that would be of interest to a national audience. Prime example, earlier this year, I did a story about um, some of the issues and uh, disparities in how Black and Brown children are treated in the foster care system. And that story came as a result of the police killing of Makai Bryant in Columbus, Ohio. Um, She was a teenager who was, you know, from what I gathered from my reporting, living in a somewhat hostile situation in her foster home. She had an altercation with some other girls at the home. Uh, The altercation spilled outside into the driveway in which Makai Bryant ended up um, going after one of the young ladies with a knife. The police pulled up to the scene and they killed her. They shot, they shot her several times and killed her. And so it's, it's one of those things that you're like, okay, well, this is, this is in, in not, I don't want to say interesting, but this is a unique, a unique situation. This is somebody who was in foster care. Foster care is where children are supposed to go and actually feel protected because in many cases they have left their biological families, their biological parents, uh, because that situation within that family was not safe or healthy for them. And then to go into a a situation with a foster care parent or a foster family that is also uh, unhealthy where you feel as though you have to protect yourself with a kitchen knife. And so I think that sort of, we we kind of look for things that stand out. That stood out to me. And we covered that. And I did a story, a, a more contextual piece 
like I mentioned earlier about the foster care system and exactly how the foster care system failed her and how it's failing other black and brown children and even, you know, pulling out some data from that. So we kind of look at, um, you know, like I said, the, sto- the stories that that stand out or the stories that really make you say, wow, you know, wow, this is um, this is this is unique. This is shocking. This is something that that we think that our audience would be interested in reading about. Um, the other story I did earlier this year was about um, the adultification of young black girls. There was a, a child who I think in Rochester, New York, who, um, you know, she had been manhandled by police, arrested and thrown in the back of a police car, young black girl. And I said, okay, let's look at this. This is, this is you know, what, what happened here? There's a trend here. There's a trend here with young black girls being manhandled by police. What is going on here? So we look for things that stand out. And within the news cycle and within stories we've seen just in recent months, even in the last year, there were several other stories about young Black girls being manhandled and body slammed by cops. Um, And so we kind of sort of took that and pulled together a story about this trend. So, yeah. It does make sense, but my my worry is that sometimes what stands out has more to do with the race of the victim than the characteristics of of the the crime, right? Because, like, according to the the Washington Post database, every year, if we just talk about unarmed Americans killed by cops, you have you know, a dozen or over a dozen unarmed black people killed by cops and a few dozen unarmed white people killed by cops. And it seems as if only the black victims, you know, stand out in that sense, even, even when there are, and, and the the reason this matters is because in the wake of all these police abuse cases, I feel I'm told, you know, everywhere outside of Fox News, at least, <laughs> I'm told the problem is racism or racist cops. But then if, if an identical thing happens to a white person, uh, you know, and there are many of these cases on camera of, of, of cops killing white people in, in cold blood in some cases. In some cases, it's the, you know, I thought the phone was a gun thing, which is, you know, believable sometimes, but not believable at other times. Um, and what that suggests to me is that usually the problem is not racist cops. It's something more structurally flawed with the incentives police face, the lack of punishment they face, the lack of training they face. And perhaps racism is a part of the story. Yes. But it seems as if it's sold as the only part or the main part. And the, the media bias towards covering certain cases and not others seems like a part of what motivates that conclusion. Well, I think part of that is that there is research and data, credible data, that shows that there is a disparity in how Black and brown people are treated by police. There is a disparity in the rate that Black men are killed by police compared to white men. And I think when you see that this is a disproportionate issue here, that this is uh, this is this is unfair. It's unbalanced in how black men are being targeted and killed by police. Black folks only make up 13 percent of the population. Why is it that we are being killed at higher rates than white people by police? And that's one that, that that remains the question that still really has not been answered. And so I think people point to racism, they point to this being a systemic issue with uh, w- with cops, and you know, oftentimes there there's recording from a police dash cam or um, you know or the the body cameras of kind of what the conversation is like when the police are going going and targeting um, af- going and targeting um, young black men, and you know, oh he looks suspicious. Oh, you know, looks like a bad dude right there. I mean, you know, these are things that we've heard, things that have been aired within the media. And so I think when people look at the facts, that's when they, you know, what are they to assume? 
you know, what, what are they to assume is the, is the driving factor here? Um, and you mentioned, you know, why, why do we always, um, why does race tend to come up even with, you know, the stories I just mentioned to you about the young black girls, because this is there, there's a disparity here. There has been research that, that shows that black, black girls are mis are manhandled and abused by police at higher rates than young white girls. Why is that? No one can answer that. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to the, the disparity in use of force between black people and, and white people, um, I mean, I, I've, I've looked at this question to, 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 to you know, with, with some detail and there, there are studies on, on both sides of it in terms of uh, the source of the disparity. So, Obviously, racial bias is a very plausible candidate for a source of the disparity. There are other plausible candidates for a source of the source of the disparity, which is cops are not getting into tense situations. Even cops that are doing their jobs without racial bias are not getting into the, these kind of situations that could result in a shooting equally with men and women, with people of all ages, with people of all races. Cops are targeting high crime communities, which are disproportionately communities of color. Um, they are targeting people. They're responding to 911 calls, uh, which are also non-random in, in how they parse out. You know, people are, when you're answering a 911 call, it's a high odds that you're, say, answering a call for a man rather than a woman. And for a man between 20 and 40, rather than a man in his eighties. And, and so another plausible candidate for these disparities is that cops are not encountering populations at the same rate, even without racial bias yet entering the equation. And uh, there are, you know, at least two or three different studies, one by Harvard economist, Roland Fryer. And that's not to say these studies are the end all be all or have the last say on the subject, but that make a very plausible case that um, in Roland Fryer's case, there is racial bias in the handling of, of uh, black suspects, but not in shootings. So my point in, in bringing up these studies is, is that I, I worry I worry we have fixated on racial bias as the one or the main cause of these extremely upsetting, never-ending string of horrible videos and news news stories we see. And you know, anyone who who like Roland Fryer or or myself comes into the picture and says, "Well, actually." This is horrible and this needs to be fixed, but racism is not the main cause here. And, um, you know, that, that tends to not be a very welcome message, but I, I, I think it's an important one. And I worry if we, if the, the, the reflex to go to racism is going to make it more difficult in the long term to solve this problem if we're misdiagnosing the source of it. But I think that that's a point that's arguable here. I think that, you know, I mean, I, I know that there, you know, that Roland has done his research um, and I, and I think that there could be other issues within police departments aside from just racial bias um, and sort of how, uh, you know, how their, their techniques and, um, you know, their uh, use of force policies, issues like that, that have come up in, in different conversations just in the last couple of years or so. But I think that there is also um, an issue that there, there are some systemic issues within police departments. And a lot of that has found to be uh, biased toward black and brown people and how police respond to a, to a black person as opposed to how they respond to a white person, how police may be more aggressive or defensive or more intimidated by a black and brown person, how black and how a black or brown person could be profiled for wearing a hoodie walking down the street at night. I mean, we've seen so much evidence of 
you know, of, of black folks being being targeted uh, unarmed in many cases, you know, unarmed black folks being targeted by police, that it's it's just it really does beg the question of whether there is a systemic issue and whether that systemic issue um, you know, does does have to do with race, racism and profiling. And, you know, there have been there have been uh, uh, communities that have tried different things. I believe in New York, they had the, the stop and frisk policy um, at one point. And, you know, people have tried to people have tried to address this issue head on. But I just think that there is just too much evidence in there are too many cases of, of black and brown people being profiled um, to not say that race has, you know, that race is not a huge part of this this issue with policing right now. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I, I guess my, what I think is probably true is that there is a lot more r- racial bias in the, n- not in the, the cases that make the news the most in terms of shootings and, and I think actually police are pretty more and more reluctant to pull the trigger because none of them want to become the next, uh, you know, uh, the next white cop that, you know, ruined their life by pulling a trigger too soon. Next Derek Chauvin. The next, no one wants to become the next Derek Chauvin now, at least that, that 10 years ago, there was there was less there were less consequences to be faced for for being in that position but under the hood the sort of run of the mill police activity of you know questioning people pulling over suspects the subtle ways in which people can be treated differently here i've always been very willing to believe that there's a lot of racial bias going on and and one of the Another thing I think is true is that partly people, because so many black people have had negative experiences with cops in these sort of everyday interactions, um, you know, that resentment can get displaced onto these national issues of shootings. Uh, and, And so people carry that resentment with them in their assessment of whether a cop should have pulled the trigger in the, in this particular case. And, you know, so like with, with the Micaiah Bryant situation, I'm, I'm curious, what did you, did you act, do you have an opinion on the cop's decision to pull the trigger in that moment? Because, you know, I, I don't know, you know, probably know more about the case than I do since you wrote all about it. But as a, as a viewer of that video, I saw you know, a hand extended backwards, potentially half a second away from ending another girl's life. And to, it's impossible to really be a thoughtful person and only consider it from Micaiah Bryant's mother's point of view and not also the mother of the girl that was potentially half a second away from being stabbed. So how does one balance those two two perspectives? Like, did you have an opinion on the cop's behavior in that case? So I, I think that I don't, I mean, I'm, I will be honest. I am not the policing expert. We do have a policing team and policing expert at CNN who we work very closely with. Um, so I'm not really sure how police are necessarily trained in situations like that, but I will say that it does beg the question whether shooting her several times was the best response and the best course of action here. That was a question that was raised by city officials. And I think it was a valid question to ask of, of, of why, you know, you, why was pulling out a gun and shooting her several times, um, you know, the, the, the first course of action here, the first, um, you know, method of, of use of force here to, to stop her uh, as a young teenage girl here. And so uh, I think that it's worth the conversation. I think that, you know, we can debate and, and, and talk to uh, police experts and law enforcement experts about um, use of force policies and, you know, what, you know, what is what what should be considered acceptable and what is not. And I think in almost every case that ends up being the conversation or the debate here is, was the police just 
in, in shooting this person? Was the police justified in, in firing several bullets um, at this person or not? And I think that it's a worthwhile conversation. A lot of my reporting that I was doing um, was really just trying to, to hold um, not just police accountable, but also hold the foster care system accountable for putting this little girl in this situation. Um, but I do think that it's a worthwhile conversation to have regarding um, the police response. All right. So in in the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes of my time with you, I want to shift the topic a little bit. And I want to talk big picture about the the state of Black America right now and an America on the issue of race, racism, uh, racial inequality. It seems like there there's huge disagreement in the country about where we are, where we've been and where we are. Um, you know, you ask some people and it seems like the difference between there's no difference between my, my grandparents' generation and my generation. You ask other people and there is, you know, there's no racism worth worrying about in America at all. And, and so I guess I just, I, I put that question to you, sort of a question about optimism or pessimism. When you look in general at what's going on in the nation right now, do you feel that, I guess there's two questions. With respect to racism, is America improving? Has it made progress in, in your lifetime? And with respect to the state of black Americans, economically, in terms of health, and you know, not not just COVID, not just the trends of the past two years, the trends of the past several decades. What do you see? The country has made some progress. I think a lot of the conversations that we're having today, as it relates to race and racism, um, are conversations that uh, would not have gotten this level of attention or even been had, uh, let's say, 20, 25 years ago. So I would say that in my lifetime, especially looking at the last year, the last two years or so, and all that has happened, all that has transpired, um, I think that people are waking up. I think that this was a wake-up call. And as tragic as George Floyd's death was, it was definitely a catalyst for uh, for starting those conversations and for folks saying, you know, hey, like, this isn't right. This is wrong. You know, why 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 was this black man treated like this? Um, you know, where the cop would a cop in, in 2020 could kneel on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while all these people stood there and watched and nothing be done about it right there in that moment. And, um, you know, I think that sort of is what triggered a lot of people of all races to see that happening. And so, I mean, I think that's something that um, that we can count as 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 progress as far as the response to what happened to him. Um, and so I think that we are moving forward, but there is still a lot of work to do. And every activist and civil rights leader that I talk to uh, will say those exact words when I interview them. They'll say that there is still work to do here. Uh, a lot of the issues that I'm covering right now within my job uh, are evidence that the nation still um, has strides to make when you look at the conversation around voting rights and voter suppression, still a huge issue, especially where I am here in the South. When you look at um, abortion care access and, you know, that's been a big conversation here in, you know, who's, you know, who's going to suffer the most uh, from from you uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, if that were to happen, um, is black and brown women. And that's, you know, and that that's been that's been the case. And, I've, you know, we've we, we've we've covered that um, the racism that you see in healthcare, health disparities, um, you know, even with with the disparities and who was being hospitalized and, and dying at the highest rate from covid. There are a lot of um, health issues that actually in a lot of cases stem from environmental racism issues. So it's all kind of a. Uh, this sort of cause and effect here, issue here where a ripple effect where because black black folks are living in these communities, 
that are being polluted by, um, by, by chemical plants. Um, they're dealing with asthma and cancer and diabetes and issues like that at, at, at far higher rates, um, given just because where they live. And so I think that even with education, you know, the quality of education that you receive in a black and brown community, is it the same on the other side of town in a white community? Um, these are all issues that I'm covering, that my team is covering, that I think show that there is still work to be done. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's one thing I can say is that I feel, I feel often that uh, people downplay certain elements uh, of the progress that has happened because there's a risk of coming across as if you don't care about racism. If you talk about how much progress has been made or if you, that, that you think everything is okay. And so there are certain things that I've been astounded to learn in terms of how much progress has been made that I just never see reported anywhere in the, in the mainstream media. And this is actually not just about race. This is, this is about everything because bad news obviously sells much more than good news. People don't turn on the TV to see, oh, you know, we, we got rid of another disease today or, you know, like, we, you know, all of the amazing progress that, that does happen, scientific and otherwise, most people are, are less interested in. And the way that manifests, I, I've seen on race, is that there's certain huge trends that most people have no idea about. So, so for instance, I was reading the, uh, the, the statistics released by the Prison Bureau every year, which is about how many black Americans are in prison broken down by age. So if you look at black men in their 20s, which is you know, the, the prime demographic of over-policing and over-incarceration of the past 40 years. In my lifetime, I'm only 25. In my lifetime, the rate of black men in their 20s being in prison has more than cut in half, which is amazing. And it, it's, a, it's, it's a statistic I never would have guessed, uh, but is, is totally publicly available. And raises very interesting questions about what the source of that trend is, how, how we can continue it. But it's a, it's a very far cry from the, the, um, the vibe out for lack of a better word that I've gotten from, you know, being a college student at Columbia where every, everyone is, is reading the new Jim Crow and watching the 13th and, you know, uh, in general, just you know, sort of swallowing the narrative that it, everything is horrible, has never been worse. Uh, the system needs to be fundamentally overturned because we, we're not making any progress on, under the status quo. I mean, things like th- th- that's the kind of th- thing that I, I've, I think has generally been a very motivating narrative for people. And I worry that there's not enough good news being reported, in other words. So, you know, where, where are the articles about all the good trends? Is it that, do you, do you have discussions about this with your team? Do you, do you feel that you, do you feel the pressure to, because every, everyone else in the news community tends to focus on the negative because it's, you know, what the market demands. Is there any, is there ever anyone in the room that's like, oh, let's do, let's actually highlight this really important positive trend. Like, how does that operate behind the scenes? I think that what you're saying is legit and I think is valid. Um, I think we, we do have those conversations. And I think for me, I have made it a point to sort of find um, those, those stories that do mark progress within the black and brown community. I think for one example is one of the things that um, you'll find in, in my writings is that, I enjoy writing about the advancement of women of color, 
women of color who have, have never had a seat at the table um, are now uh, making uh, advancements in, in politics. They're making advancements in, um, you know, in, in fighting for voting rights and getting more, you know, more people registered, especially here in Georgia, where uh, my good friend Latasha Brown, who I've, I've, you know, I talk to regularly about the work that she does um, here, you know, on the ground with, with getting folks registered, um, you know, looking at uh, women like the vice, the vice president, you know, Kamala Harris, she's, you know, the first Black and, and Asian woman to hold the vice president seat. Uh, we've highlighted that, um, you know, so I think that we, that I, this, and that's just one, one area that I just, being a woman of color, uh, I just take interest in that and seeing, seeing that, that the, the advancement of women of color, even in the fight against COVID. I did a big piece earlier this year about um, female doctors and scientists who, uh, black female uh, scientists and doctors who were on the front lines uh, fighting uh, fighting COVID and trying to uh, de- develop the vaccine because Nikia Corbett, you know, we, we featured her. Um, and so I, I do look for those positive stories and look for um, those moments to be able to celebrate success because those stories are there. Could we do a better job of highlighting those, the progress? Yes, definitely. And I think that there's an appetite for that. I think that that readers and viewers, um, you know, obviously know that racism is an issue that the country um, still has a lot of a lot more progress to make. And they, you know, and they, they want to see us cover um, the, the challenges and, and the disparities that the nation still still is facing right now. But they also want to hear the good stories. I mean, when I when I write about, you know, black women rising to political power, I get a lot of positive feedback from folks who are like, great story. This makes me so excited and encouraged. So I think that we need to sort of find that balance and continue to do that. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a great note to end on. And, um, as we speak, actually, my, my sister is the campaign manager for India Walton in, in Buffalo. And, uh, they are working very hard today as, as they're trying to win that election there. And, and today we're speaking on the day, I believe the day of that election. So speaking of black women moving up the ranks, um, in any case, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope to have you back again at some point. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.